Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. As we continue to face COVID-19, we're now facing flu season. Influenza has the potential to infect millions, putting lives and the healthcare system at risk. Now more than ever, it's essential to protect yourself from influenza by getting the flu vaccine. The flu vaccine is safe and effective and can't give you the flu. To protect yourself and those at highest risk, get your flu vaccine. Learn more at michigan.gov flu. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Hello and welcome to season five of Mixtape, Mixtape Memories. Memories. <laughs> I'm Jenners. And I'm Matt Hart Spade. And we're here with a very, very special guest, Mike Doty. Welcome. Hello. Thank you very much. <laughs> Good to be here. Yeah. So you may know him from Soul Coughing back in the 90s. And, but, you know, maybe you know him from his prolific solo career as well. Yes. Or his latest project from 2020, Ghost of Room. So yeah, many we, projects yep, and um, yep, ways to right. go. <laughs> <laughs> lot to uh, lot to list. I'm doing uh, relatively well, I would say, relatively well. How about you? Uh, yeah, you know, as well as can be. <laughs> yeah, we're getting yeah, yeah. by. Yeah, yeah, we're yeah, excited yeah. to have you as our first guest of of the season. It's a nice way I'm, to kind of start things off. I I'm know. very pleased. I'm glad to be here. You're like a 90s OG, so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they call it the late 1900s now, so. <laughs> they do, like for real. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, people are really saying that, which is, like, kind of uh, disconcerting to some, but I, mm. I'm amused by it. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we totally rewind, I'm just wondering, how has the last year and a half been for you, and where are you in the world? I live in Memphis. And, uh, uh, you know, I mean, it was really great for a little while. Uh, I'm in, like an isolator by nature. I felt like I had an excuse. And then I just kind of hit a wall, like, yeah. like right around like Christmas of mm. 2020. It's just like something descended and I felt shitty. But, you know, I actually put out a couple of uh, records and a book in the midst of the pandemic, which mm -hmm. is not great for promoting records or books. But, uh, you know, I wrote a ton of songs and collaborated with people. And so, you know, I kept my head above water in a, in a general sense, I feel. You're like constantly writing songs, right? Because you have a Patreon yeah. and you're kind of writing for the subscribers there. What's yeah, that yeah, like? The the Patreon is a song a week, a new song every week. Wow. Uh, yeah. And um, I have, since the pandemic, I have like a, like a, you know, stack of like 20, you know, so like I could take a nap for a few months and be fine. Um, <laughs> but, 
Yeah, you know, in in general, I just uh, you know make sure I start something and finish it uh, every week, and that's what that's amazing. You know, that's really how I make my living. Is you know, very small crew of people uh, listening to the the you know this super new stuff. And you were doing that way before the pandemic, right? Like you were really you, building this up. Yeah, I've been doing it for like four years. Like when the pandemic happened, every musician I know texted me <laughs> wanted to know how i i have done it and uh it was it was uh uh satisfying to to be the guy who was ahead of the curve yeah, yeah. well i like it because like i feel like like you bring your personality you know as well yeah. to like mm -hmm. everything and i think that's how you can really build like a loyal following that'll like support you and be there alongside you and, you know, help you do whatever you need to do to, like, survive in these times. So I think that's amazing. Yeah, and it's good It's good for artists, um, like, not, not just musicians, but, you know, if you have an old body of work that you're known for, you don't really make a lot of money off it. I mean, I guess mm -hmm. unless you're, like, a super crazy superstar. But most people don't can't make a living off the stuff they're well known for. So it's a way of getting like that super small crew of people that are engaged in your new work to, to, um, to support you. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it feels amazing to like, to, to be, you know, paying the mortgage off new work that I'm doing every single week. And of course, you know, you get on Twitter and it's all people that, we're talking about circles and super bomb bomb, which is fine. Mm -hmm. You know, I play old material, but um, it really am, you know, sending a check to the bank every month uh, because I have this Patreon. Mm -hmm. um, since you brought it up, and I feel like we can't not talk about the big 90s singles, can you kind yeah, of yeah. Dis discuss how the Patreon kind of life and what you've built there? compares to what like label life was like and like having radio hits in the 90s and just kind of compare and contrasting well i had a really good experience on warner brothers mm -hmm. and not everybody had a great experience uh with their record label but warner brothers kind of had a shtick about itself that it was incredibly artist friendly and like famously they signed prince when he was 18 and we're like, oh, let's get your producer. And he was like, I don't need a producer. And they were like, okay. Which, <laughs> like, no label ever would ever do. But clearly, um, you know, they, they did, he did well by them. So, you know, uh, they were really, really um, good to us. Um, they paid for a lot of stuff. Um, you know, like, not, not only the fact that I have a career because they spent money just like, I mean, it costs a lot, a lot of money to get into a van and tour nine months out of the year for two years. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like not cheap. And they paid for it. Uh, they paid for videos. Um, as our productions got more elaborate, they paid for that. Um, it, you know, it's great having stuff paid for. And um, I'm not sure I wouldn't want to be on a label now. Um, I actually am talking to labels, but there is this sort of delicate thing of like, like I got to keep the Patreon going. I'm mm -hmm. better because of Patreon, like a better 
uh, writer and singer and musician and everything. You know, back back in the 90s, we were friends with a lot of people in, like, the British drum and bass world and in the techno world. And we really envied them, like, you know, they would record a single and it'd be out. They'd, they'd do a, a press a white label and give it to DJs and it was out. And then the next week it would be in stores. So we we really pined for that. However, like, we had a way better label experience than the majority of people that that we knew i mean it's just like i got no complaints about that time yeah i mean you released like three albums right mm -hmm. three soul coughing albums on warner so i think that yeah but it that is a unique story because i feel like you talk to so many people and they have awful stories and so it's kind of good to hear a good one yeah <laughs> like, yeah i mean that there were certain occasions where I look back and I was like, they should have yelled at us. Like, they should have made us, like, where we just made stupid mistakes and they just went with us. And, you know, I mean, it, it beats the alternative of, you know, like, all the stories of I, I hear of, like, you know, people turning in albums and them getting rejected or, you know, all the, all the terrible stories that you hear. Maybe it's because... You're like a unicorn. <laughs> like, I feel like that your band was very distinct and like uh, something special, you know, that kind of stands out from the pack. Well, so. I think cer certainly they knew what they were getting. Yeah. Um, you know, and there was just so much they could do with it. And, you know, I mean, um, the other we we were technically signed to an imprint called Slash. Right. And uh, their other, uh, among their other uh, uh, big-ish things was the Violent Femmes, mm -hmm. you know. And can you imagine someone going to the Violent Femmes being like, you guys should have electric guitars, and like, <laughs> you should put this, you know, like, like you, you know what you're getting here. There's only so much you can do in terms of, I don't know, pressuring somebody to be um, commercial. But look, like, Absolutely, you're absolutely right, but, like, I just, uh, you know, it, it has a lot to do with Slash and Warner Brothers, and, you know, if I can shout out people, Bob Biggs, Randy Kay, Stephen Baker, Peter Rao, like, all all kinds of people, Lenny fucking Warnaker, you know, pe people that were, like, really good to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I was hoping you could maybe touch upon kind of going into your solo career and you're very prolific. I mean, you've always been prolific, yeah. but I feel like in the aughts specifically, there was a lot of material. I remember seeing you at the Black Cat in DC mm -hmm. on a very snowy night. Yeah, I remember that maybe show. Like... Oh, you I do? I do remember that show. <laughs> I don't know, 02-ish, yeah. something like yep. that. And that was the first time I had seen you post soul coughing. Yeah. And um, it just felt very special because it was a journey to get to the venue that night. Yes. And then it just felt very homey. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. How, what was that like kind of after the soul coughing days and then into releasing solo material and solo touring? Well, I took a sharp left turn at, at like in like in like 97. I saw an Elliott Smith and Magnetic Field show at Feds, mm. um, which was a wow. club on Lafayette Street. And there was nobody there, and it was like, it was like a CMJ show or something, and it was it was just mind blowing. And I was like, I'm gonna make that's a dream build. Oh my wow. god, <laughs> oh my god! And and they were not known bands, so it's like, yeah, I I'd never heard of them. So I was there with um, 
a friend and you know fucking the magnetic fields come out on stage and you know your mind is blown and you're like what the fuck and then elliot smith walks out on, i mean can you imagine like can you imagine it was it was insane and so that and um i was really into uh low mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. galaxy 500 and their producer uh was a guy named kramer um who was kramer before the seinfeld kramer um he had like this particular sound where he used these huge reverbs and recorded to this really saturated tape and so i made an album called skittish with him that i then released independently in 2000 when soul coffin broke up and then i sort of doggedly pursued that you know foolhardy artistic change until i uh got a whole new audience from it then I signed to ATO, Dave Matthews Imprint, put out three labels with them. Again, really good experience. Um, both Warner Brothers and ATO got me on David Letterman, so like that's that's a dream come true. It's great. I man. love being a guy that's been on Letterman twice. I mean, you know, <laughs> that's that's a, definitely a, a notch in the post. Definitely. Um, yeah. So again, super good experiences. You're lucky. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. You know, I think also like I could tell, I, I, I kind of made the right decisions in those moments, <laughs> and I could focus on the people that I thought were gonna help us out, help me out, help us out. Well, we have to go way back and kind of ask about your actual mixtape memories and what you were listening to as a kid, as a teenager in those kind of formative years. So um, could you kind of take us back to the early days? Well, I had a pause tape, which was uh, a pause tape was you you had a, a, a boom box, you put it on record and put it on pause. And then when you were listening to the radio, you would jump and hit the pause button and it would record whatever your favorite song was. And that was like eighth grade, seventh grade or something. Um, There was this amazing Run DMC PSA that is lost to time that I had on this pause tape. And I've never heard anyone talk about it. I've never seen it on YouTube. I'm going to uh, recreate it for you right now. Okay. And I'm not going to do it in a Run DMC voice. I'm just going to recite it. The other day I got word from my girlfriend, Sue. She said, I've got VD. You might have it too. I said, no way, no how. If I had it, I'd know it. She said, that's not always true because some people don't show it. I said, where can I go to find out if I got it? Well, you can get help free from the health department. Yes, if you're told you might have VD, the New York State Health Department says, check it out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. And like somebody's got to find that somewhere. And it was like when I became a hipster in my 20s, I got rid of all my corny 80s shit, which was a tragic mistake. (laughs) Um, You know, it looks. We're going to find it. I'm going to find someone on Reddit who can somehow get us. Someone has to find it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. So no, I totally did that. I did totally remember like recording songs off the radio and making tapes like based on that. Oh yeah. Were you kind of like, 
someone who made mixtapes for people or and gave it to them or received mixtapes? Were you ever kind of in that? Both given and received. I think every time it was someone that I liked that didn't like me or someone like me who and I didn't like that. Like <laughs> I can't I can't remember a, 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 any other situation of giving a mixtape. And, yeah. uh, you know, we worked hard on them, not just the music, but the cover. Of and, course. You know, it was, <laughs> the timing. Yeah, yeah. And making it all fit and everything. Yeah, you had to make it, uh, you had to make this perfect little vessel. And uh, I wish I still had them, you know. I know. I still have, like, um, all the mixtapes, like, um, that I've got, 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 like, in high school. <laughs> Right. Just because, like, they made such an impression on me, and I feel like they formed my musical tastes um, because I wasn't, like, like nobody was buying me, like, you know, cassettes or whatever. Sure, sure. Um, so that that was how I discovered music. So, you know, I just feel like um, I'll probably have them forever. I don't know. I think it's hard to let them go for whatever reason. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I wish I, wish I had not been such a fucking you know, I don't know, pretentious idiot and like, you know, been like, oh, I, I eschew my past and all the stuff that I have decided is not cool enough for me anymore. Dumb yeah. thing to do. I mean, I did the same thing. I threw away all of my cassettes. And then once things be, once, you know, the iPod came out, I threw away all my CDs. Yeah. So I didn't have anything physical. Yep. And it's funny now, I mean, over the last 10, 15 years, I've collected a lot of vinyl, of course, but like, I've started buying some 90s cassettes that I used to own way back and listen to them on the Walkman only because of like, nostalgia's sake. It's a very much like a tactile thing for yeah. me. Like I could press a play button and kind of be in that world again. But no, I wish I kept things. I threw everything away. Yeah, it's, it's such yeah. a bummer. Such a bummer. Um, I've kept some cassettes. I have like a like a little shelf of cassettes and like dat tapes from the '90s, like in the studios, di digital audio tapes, which were like little tiny things, and you could fast forward mm -hmm. to individual locations, and it was considered to be like the fucking future or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, I kept a lot of those. Like, what kind of music? really made an impression on you like growing up like from like a young age like what are your kind of like earliest music memories and my my very earliest memory is listening to john denver's greatest hits <laughs> when i was like three or four and i had one of those library box cassette players and uh, my parents had this giant green oldsmobile and you know, it was like it was like longer than me on both sides in the back seat. <laughs> and I just remember holding that to my ear and like getting like completely lost in in John Denver, you know. That was like your parents' thing. record wow. or something. I feel like my well, I had the cassette. I feel like my and it was the early days of cassettes too, like being able to buy a cassette at a, a music store, and they must have bought me the cassette. Because they had a record player. They didn't listen to a lot of records, but they had, you know, like my mom had like whatever records you collected in the early 60s, which is like Joan Baez and mm. Bob Dylan, like that, that kind of stuff, which she never, ever busted out the records. My dad was into Willie Nelson. We listened to that sometimes. But yeah, I, I have no idea how, I, I have no idea how I got the cassette recorder, much less the tape. <laughs> mm. 
<laughs> like when did you know like from there that you like wanted to be in music or did you know that you wanted to be in music i remember this very desperate feeling starting to happen when i was like in seventh grade that i was like i have to do this for a living i have no idea how you do this for a living it's totally impossible i don't i didn't know anybody that could like teach me chords on a guitar you know my parents didn't understand i, I had quit uh trumpet in the school band in the seventh grade and they were like well so you're not into music this is just a thing you're going through because obviously you'd be into your trumpet if you were a music guy <laughs> so they 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 didn't understand and uh i never thought it was really possible even though i was like forming bands and you know i worked super hard when i got to new york as like a late teenager um super hard like calling up clubs and sending tapes around and like but i i have to say looking back on it i never thought it would work i i never like it, even as hard as i was i was working to make it work i never really thought it would happen for me so what was the breakout moment like when did, did someone spot you or how did it all kind of come about with those with the first release we met this guy Soulcoffing had been around for like a year and I should say, I met this guy who wanted to make a video. And he was like right out of film school, like in Buffalo or something. And he'd moved to New York and he wanted to make a video. And he was like, all we need is $5,000. And I was like, $5,000? Like, you know, I was like <laughs> 22. Yeah. And like right. 5000 like, okay, that's great. And he's like, he's like, well, here's what I'll do. I'll get you a record deal. And I was like... Okay, buddy, <laughs> like, do your best. And he was just like a persistent guy and was just one of those guys that, that would be like, uh, would be like, you have to see this band. They're the greatest band in the whole world. And like, you know, could say <laughs> that kind of stuff with a straight face. And so the next show we did, there were like 10 A&R people there. And wow. uh, it was a it was a very fortunate time to be uh, trying to get a record deal because it was sh a couple years after Nirvana had happened. They you know this was like '93, so they were they were still uh, Kurt was still alive, and so what had happened then was uh, they had been blindsided by something they did not understand. The entire music business, it, it everything changed overnight. Um, famously, Geffen did not print enough CDs uh, yeah. for for how big, mm -hmm. you know, which is an amazing story. Like they had, they had really no idea, and so people were desperately looking for things that they could not understand. And so here comes Soulcoffing walking into the fray, totally ununderstandable. But there were like hooks and stuff, and it was a compelling show. That being said, the guy who signed us to Slash, we were playing at CB's Gallery next door to CBGB's. He mm -hmm. couldn't get into a, a to a John Spencer Blues Explosion show, and so he just he came next door and sat down, and we were playing, and that's that's really how we got our record deal. That's wow. amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, but I mean, you know, like we would have signed with one of these. A guy, um, this woman, Kate Hyman who now she's like a big deal in music publishing, but she was an A&R at a label called Imago. So at that show, 
where all those A&R people were at. I had heard her name because I worked at a club and she was on guest lists and stuff. So I knew she was like a, a big deal. And so she comes up and says, hi, I'm Kate Hyman from Imago Records. I was like, oh, hey, nice to meet you. You want to put out my record? And she goes, yeah. <laughs> it was just like <laughs> stunned. Like, like what? Like, what? Amazing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I feel like we can't, like, not talk about the fact that, like, before Soul Coughing, you were at Knitting Factory, which was, I was at the Knitting Factory, yeah. And, like, a lot of the band members, or maybe all of the band members were All of the band members. I was just putting bands together. I was working the door at the Knitting Factory, and I would just put bands together from from people. Because everybody was, like, freelance, and everybody was, like, playing in each other's bands and you know it was very ad hoc yeah and so i was just asking people that i met to be uh in you know be on a show with me and i would you know go to the guy who booked the shows at the knitting factory and get like tuesday at 11 p.m you know something that nobody else wanted and then we'd play to 10 people and so i put like i don't know there were three bands called soul coughing there were like 10 other bands called Other Things, <laughs> cycling through band names. And I would get on the phone for every show and call ev- literally everyone whose phone number I had. <laughs> literally, people would be like, hey, man, we haven't heard from you. I'd be like, hey, it's great to talk to you. So I'm playing on Tuesday night at mid, <laughs> like, r- like really, really hustling. And then like 10 people would show up. And wow. then one soul climbing show at the Knitting Factory. I was just like, fuck it. I'm so tired. I cannot do this. Fuck it. And 55 people showed up for that show. I know it exactly because I worked the ticket desk and, you know, I looked at the little, you know, chintzy computer system and I'll always remember that number. 55 people. And And it wasn't everyone you knew. And it wasn't everyone I knew. (laughs) Well, I knew everyone, to be fair. But... they were all people that wanted to come, yeah. who paid, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it was, $8, yeah, yeah. you know, and 55 people. That That's like the start of me, you know, doing this for real. Wow. I love that. That's awesome. Um, I know we wanted to touch upon New York venues that mean a lot to you. Mm. Uh, outside of Knitting Factory, are there any that you've either performed at or seen shows at that really stand out for you from... 80s, 90s, aughts. Well, it really, CB's Gallery, CB's 313 was such a spot. I think everybody that got booked in there felt like they were getting like the, like the lo-fi version of CBGB, Hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. like Louise was the woman who booked CBGBs and she was absolutely terrifying. (laughs) And you'd call, uh, you know, you'd send your tape and uh, call her up and she would always be like, okay, call me next Monday, click. And you'd call next Monday and you'd be like, um, hi, so, okay, call me next Wednesday, click. You know, and, and, and then eventually she was like, okay, call me on Saturday, but call me at this number. And she gave me a different number. And I remember calling up and I was like, hi, is Louise there? And the person on the other end was like, she's not here, but you are calling on the right number. 
So it was like, you know. Okay. Yeah. So she she booked us at CB's 313, and there was like a whole scene that went on, and they were like, basically any band with an upright bass, and there were a lot of mm-hmm. bands with upright bass, and experimental bands, and like that kind of stuff. It was a really, really good scene. I wish I could have been there in, at that moment. Yeah. You know? It was a good moment, man. I didn't start going to CBs till later on. You never know when the good moments are happening. <laughs> but then you look yeah. back and you're like, this was the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have um, like favorite memories from touring, whether it was soul coughing or solo or? Wow. It's all a blur. <laughs> it re- and it like little moments, the snow at that show in D.C. Like, I totally remember that. I remember the veggie burger I ate that night. (laughs) Um, It's so funny. I knew I was going to bring up that show, and I was like, you've done 20,000 shows. You're not going to remember that one. That's funny. There's (laughs) just little things that you remember, and, you know, most of them you can't even connect to, um, you know, a particular gig, but it's just all this kind of rolling fog of you know and i'm like you know i did six years touring soul coughing 10 years touring solo five years with a band you know several years with uh my partner in ghost of room andrew livingston aka scrap um so like it's uh i mean to bring to to bring up a current memory a current memory that's an oxymoron um, <laughs> a current tour a, memory. A, yeah. a, a recent tour memory is Scrap, my who plays sometimes plays guitar, sometimes bass, sometimes cello, sometimes keyboards, depending on the gig or the recording. I don't call out the songs, I, you know, and I don't write a set list. We just sort of, you know, I just sort of play stuff. And many, many times we've played something, and after the show, I go. We've never rehearsed that, have we? And he's like, nope. <laughs> he just like, there's never a moment where he's like, what key is this in, or how does this go, or like he does somehow everything right. You know, he can hear where the chord's going before it goes there, and uh, that's a super cool experience. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like finding that kind of bandmate or musical mm-hmm. partner with the, the right chemistry is so challenging. So in a lot of ways, that's pretty, pretty awesome. That you guys yeah, have. definitely. It, it's definitely a love connection. Yeah, definitely. Like, like we've been working together for like 15 years now. So yeah. that was really always good. the biggest mystery for me. Like if I like watched like a band, like rehearse or something and they're like writing or like working on a new song or something. And then like, I'm always like, how do you know what to play next? <laughs> what, what, what's the next note? <laughs> like, like, how do you, how does it happen that everyone just kind of comes in and does these parts and somehow they all gel together? Like, I feel like. I, I've always tried to work with people that you don't have to say a lot to. Mm. And so if I play yeah. something, play with someone for the first time, and like before we really start playing, they start asking questions. I'm like, mm, I don't think this is gonna work out. But if somebody, <laughs> if you just like start something and the guy's like, well, okay, you know, just like, even if it's like the dumbest, most wrong thing possible, 
you know, I tell people like, take risks. You know, I would rather tell you to play less stuff than more stuff. Mm. You know, I'd rather you have weird ideas that failed than you kind of play it safe. Um, So like that's, and that's just always been thrilling to me to really, um, you know, have another mind in, in the mixture and, uh, you know, get, get their fullest artistic, whatever it is out of them. What are your thoughts on kind of hitting the road again, not just post pandemic, but post touring for so, so many years? Do you have any desire at this point? Are you more comfortable kind of being at home, recording music for the Patreon fans and, you know, writing your books and so on? What, what is more preferable at this point? I think a lot of people discovered, a lot of artists discovered that they actually spend money to be on the road. So I think a lot of us after a year were like, where'd all this money come from? Like, what? Like, holy shit, <laughs> you know? So I think, you know, there is, there is, you know, I don't think any artist could survive if they did not tour at all. I think there are people that are going to be like, I don't want to go out on the road. I don't think I have to go out on the road. I think yeah, mm-hmm. I could, you know, just use social media every waking moment of my life the way I do and have the Patreon. And it's a really small number of people that provide me with the roof over my head and the food in my refrigerator. But I love playing live. I love being with Scrap. Um, Our drummer, Madden Class, she's like amazing. Love hanging out with her. Um, We have like this improvisation system that we use that's based on some old like John Zorn pieces, speaking of, you know, coming up in the Knitting Factory when it was an avant-garde jazz club. Yeah. You know, it's like hand signals that are like stop, start, change, get louder, get softer. And, you know, you do that for a week's worth of shows and suddenly you're this finely tuned organism that can go in all these weird different places without a lot of discussion. And I love that. And we're, so I'm, I'm doing a weekly residency in LA in Mm. January and February where we're going to do like mostly improvised stuff. And it's Madden's going to be there. She's playing drums. Scrap's going to be there. I'm going to be there. And then we're just going to get a rotating cast of everybody who's great in Los Angeles that's interested in doing this. However, it may, um, it may just all, you know, come to nothing because of lockdowns and, uh, and I've already paid for the Airbnb. So if anybody <laughs> I know wants to have lunch in LA in the first couple months of 2022, I'll be available. I'm also hoping like, like I know, you know, Kurt and Kristen from hot tub and mm-hmm. Paul F. Tompkins and like, all kinds of people that put on Mark Marin, uh, mm-hmm. Liam McEnany, all kinds of people that put on shows, especially comedy shows, yeah, um, where they throw on a musical guest. I hope to do a lot of those, and yeah, you know, I, I kind of get on the good foot and start sending some emails. <laughs> yeah, I mean, weirdly, that I feel like that's how I met you is through the comedy. Indeed, it is in New yeah. York. So yeah. uh, I always found that fascinating. Um, when comedians like kind of adopt like a, a musician yes. into you know the group and then it's like me or ted leo <laughs> exactly. and if you're famous it's amy mann <laughs> it's funny you mentioned ted leo because first of all we interviewed him last season yes. and secondly i the question i had about kind of 
pandemic touring kind of was spurred based on his response because he was kind of more skittish about going out and whatnot. I think since then he's booked a couple things. I know he's playing City Winery here in New Mm -hmm. York. Yeah, so that's kind of funny that his name got thrown into the mix. (laughs) I love playing those comedy shows. I love comedians. I've learned so much about rhythm from those people. You know, I've just like met so many cool people in that world. So it's great because I have such admiration uh, for the artistry, and I've learned so much by watching so many comedians, but I have no interest in engaging in the actual art form, which yeah. is which is amazing, like being really into something and not wanting to, you know, pilfer and do your Although, own vibe. I feel like with Ghost of Room, like, there is, like, kind of a sense of humor in some of those lyrics. Oh, yeah. No, know? no, no, so absolutely. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, like, you know? there's... I could, you know, there's things about like how to land a punchline that work mm-hmm. perfectly in music, and yeah. you know which words to start, which words to end with, what you're gonna repeat. Absolutely, I've got I've gotten so much from from comedians. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it says a lot about you as a musician too, because I've seen you on these comedy uh, lineups uh, where you know there's a bunch of comedians and then you go on and you're singing and then everyone's listening. Intense, I know. You know, <laughs> which, which yeah, you have a very, in, yeah. The crowd is at a comedy show versus the crowd at a typical music event. Very different. People talk at music shows. <clears throat> yeah. And like, nobody wants to shut people up. And it's always <laughs> like, you know, 200 people that are listening and two people drunk in the back that are talking <laughs> and no one will throw them out. And it's just a total mm-hmm. mystery to me. Cause it's like, you could do, there's so many singer-songwriters in this world that would play so many more shows if they would just shut up the fucking one drunk guy. Yes. You know, and the one drunk mm-hmm. guy is going to tweet like, you know, how dare they because it was a bar. And like, that's always the excuses. It was a bar. Like, yes, it's a bar that people paid money to see music in. And there's a yeah. lot of bars, man. <laughs> like, take your pick. There's like two within walking distance. Like, come on, man. Exactly. I just exactly. never, I will never understand that. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's so, it's so terrible. I think I'm, the next time I do, my manager suggested this. The next time I do an acoustic tour, I'm actually going to bring a bouncer. Oh, like I'm going to find a big okay. ass dude. Um, to, did you ever did you ever go to Largo in the late nineties? Maybe you both are too young for this. I was in, in LA, yeah, at that time. Fairfax. Yeah. Um, so their thing was they shut up anybody who said anything, and they made you. And this was before cell phones, really before texting. If they saw a phone, they would. Like, like, oh, what's that dude's name? He's such a good guy. He still works there. It's not, not Flanagan, the other guy. Um, who would, like, like I, I remember, like, turning to a friend and being like, hey, we should go to pizza after this. And he, he, like, was on our table, in our face. He's like, do you want your money back? Because we'll, we'll give you your money back right now. You can leave right now. And that's why that club is legendary. It's because yeah. they shut people mm-hmm. up. And yeah. everybody, I mean, that's why Fiona Apple started playing there and Amy Mann yeah. and, you know, John Bryan and all those people. It was because it was this amazing mixture of uh, comedians and musicians and other artists. 
and they were in a listening room where people were actually listening. So I wish yeah. somebody would, you know, I don't know, take their cue and have like a super successful club that everyone wanted to go to. Maybe it's crazy, but, uh, you know, I, I would think that would be good for a bar owner. You can start mm -hmm. the trend with your security guard. With my, <laughs> my big-ass bouncer. Come here, Show them Bruce. how to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know. Should we move on to repeat skip? It's I think so. why not? I feel I feel like I'm too verbose in answering no, these you're questions. Great. I love I not love the all. stories. <laughs> and speaking of, we would love to know why you chose uh, the first album we're gonna talk about today, which is the self titled album from The Laws, circa nineteen ninety. Which of course contains uh, There She Goes, which is, you know, ha has stood the test of time. Right. What's your memory of this band, of this album and why'd you choose it today? I think it's one of the greatest rock albums I'm just going to be a, a weirdo and say ever made. I think it's an incredible album that um, people just have not remembered. I mean, there's that Sixpence None the Richer cover of <laughs> There She Goes. But mm -hmm. I mean, I think largely people don't even know that that's a Laws song. And every single one of those songs is amazing. The record hangs together as a record in a way that, like, some of my favorite records don't. I don't think mm -hmm. there's a skip on there. Um, and the repeat is the whole album. Like, <laughs> like for real. You know. I, I had a feeling you might say something like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I, I just think, like, if you're into rock music, if you're into songs, Find yeah. the laws, man. It is a it is such a great underappreciated album, and it seemed it seemed like everybody, especially English people. They, I mean, they were from Liverpool, but yeah. like like all the Britpop bands and the English artists in like '95 were like, "Oh my God, the laws! Why doesn't anybody talk about mm -hmm. the laws?" Nobody, and now nobody talks about the laws. And uh, very true. Yeah, it's like. I mean, oh it might God. have something to do with the fact that the singer Lee Mavers like is doesn't want to be like in the spotlight and right. is not very, um, you know, like people always want him to put out music and new yeah. music, but he hasn't put out any new music since this album. So not into it. And he's like, from what I hear, he's like sober and a dad. And yeah. um, I was in Liverpool and talking to somebody and. Uh, they were like, you know, oh, do you mean Lee Mavers? And I was like, you know Lee Mavers? <laughs> and I guess I could have orchestrated an introduction, but I'm, you know, absolutely terrified of meeting somebody that I, you know, quasi-idolize like that. But, yeah, I mean, you know, regardless of what he's doing now, that, I mean, that should be up there as a classic record. Classic, yeah. classic mm -hmm. record. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. Yeah, I mean, I think the album just, uh, to be honest with you, I haven't listened to this album in quite some time, yeah. and it does flow really beautifully. And I feel like there are a lot of those early Britpop kind of albums from the early 90s that, I don't know, it's very cohesive. Yeah. It, it just all makes sense, and it doesn't feel like there's the obvious skip. So I hear what you're saying yeah. about that. Yeah, absolutely. That said, I did choose to skip Looking Glass just because I felt like, I don't know, sometimes when there's a track on the album that's like kind of 
the closer. Yeah, that's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That, that's like it goes on a little too yes, long. Yes, kind, kind of lose interest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just I just find that like it's it's like you know I think you're absolutely right. It's a long ass song, which is like completely uncharacteristic of. I mean, other than that, there's I don't I don't know if there's many tracks that go over two minutes and thirty seconds. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that song's probably like four minutes long, and after listening to the record, rest of the record, you're like, God, this is going on a long-ass time. Um, but <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, like five minutes, maybe, six minutes. But I just, I just find it's like a movie. I get to that point. Um, and it's also such a time travel record for me. And yeah. I'm, I'm like, I'm not like a big time travel record guy where I'm trying to like, you know, like put on music that makes me feel like I'm living in... 2002 or 1992 or 1982 or 1978 or whatever it is i'm not that kind of a person but always i put it on and it just goes back to like a certain magical time Mm -hmm. you know i think for me i really got into Britpop uh when it really made a splash here uh in the states in the mid 90s uh when i was a teenager and you know it was all Oasis, Blur, right. Elastica, all that stuff. For me, it's kind of a treat to go back to the stuff that was a few years prior right. because I didn't necessarily grow up with it. So I kind of have an adult appreciation for it versus when I listen to, you know, a, a Blur album from the mid-90s and it's more nostalgia and I know every word. That's not the case with an album like this one because I didn't, I was too young when right. it was kind of all happening. Sure, you know? yeah, yeah. So I love it when there's like an old record that people's memories from it or from like 1997 you're like oh yeah you know let it bleed i remember being you know a college freshman in 2007 and you know um but you know music does that it's not necessarily tied to its time but to your time mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so true i also i also want to say that if you're listening to this and you're like that's a really solid endorsement for the laws but I don't like Blur and Oasis or Echo Belly, another band people should be talking about. Oh, it, it, it is yeah. so, so elevated from... Oh, I mean... Yeah, oh, yeah. It is it's so, nothing. It's, a, yeah, it's yeah. an entirely different yeah. experience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, clearly all those Britpop people listened to it on repeat and, you know, took notes. But yeah. it it really is like a like a, 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 a great timeless statement. Yeah, I feel like the the albums that came out around, I mean, and I guess I'm going to throw in the Stone Roses oh. just because they were obviously a huge yeah. UK band at this moment as well. Uh, I feel like it was a lot more earnest and a little less ego than the mid '90s mm-hmm. Britpop acts, you know. Well, it became like a like a like the, the sort of necessary stance, you know. Like if you were in alternative rock, you had to talk all the time about how you didn't want to be a rock star. And if you were in Britpop, you had to talk all the time about how you were the greatest band in the world. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, whatever the, whatever the, the, like, fashionable stance is, everybody had to take it. So I always take that stuff with a grain of salt. Yeah. Yeah. For me, like, um, I don't even, like, associate, like, yeah, I wouldn't even associate, like, the laws with anything, like, definitely not Oasis, because I just, mm-hmm. I don't like Oasis, but mm. um, <laughs> even though I know, like, I feel like Lee Mavers and the Gallagher brothers, like, know each other, but, like, no, they got it. Um, <laughs> but for me, it's, like, all, like, that, like, 60s garage and some of the songs that I, like, really get into, so for, my, for me, uh, I would, like, repeat, like, songs like 
feeling or failure mm. and then yeah just be basic and <laughs> like there she goes i mean honestly that pops up on my spotify all the time <laughs> and it's, it's a great pop song it's amazing it's an amazing yeah. song it's it, so like incredible good. <laughs> and um timeless melody on there is like it's like it's twin i feel yeah um <laughs> And I like that he can go, like, both ends of, like, yeah, the yeah. vocal spectrum, where mm-hmm. it's, like, a little deeper sometimes and a little higher. And... Yep, yep, yep. 100% recommend. Yeah. and But I would, I skipped, like, um, maybe some of the, like, more repetitive songs, like, things that mm. weren't as dynamic. So, like, I, I would skip, like, Liberty Ship or, like, mm. in, Doldrum. It's almost like... Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but um but for me it's there's two records that 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 if i hear one song come up on a playlist i have to stop and listen to the entire album it's this album and led zeppelin Mm four like the only albums that are that are like i mean i'm trying to think of another one even stone rose's first album which i absolutely love um yeah. I, there's like a skipper or two on there these mm. these two albums it's like for me no part is bigger than the whole like you have mm. to listen to to the whole i like very kind of wonder what yeah. like because like lee mavers is like known for being such like weird obsessive perfectionist and mm-hmm. i think that's why he didn't release any more albums is like i think um i read that he was um kind of obsessed with like maybe going back and re-recording this album <laughs> because well, he you... didn't think it was perfect so i kind of wonder like which songs did he think needed some tweaking <laughs> on here? so so here's the thing about that is the the record they didn't finish the record and so the label handed it to steve lillywhite you know right. like the u2 guy mm-hmm. who mixed it in very steve lillywhite style and I would hear Lee Mavers go, I don't like that record. I don't like it at all. I don't like it. And I'd be like, well, that's weird. But now you can hear the first recordings, and they are, like, so tough and clangorous, and mm. and there's, like, a little dissonance in them that you really go, oh, yeah, like, this isn't what he meant at all. Mm. And I kind of feel guilty loving it as much as I do. <laughs> um, but, of course, I feel that way about, like, you know, anything I've ever recorded that's, like, more than three weeks old. Like, I love it the day, and then I'm like, oh, my God, that's so terrible. Why didn't I do this, that, the other thing? So I feel I mean, it. you're and, always exploring different ways to, I feel like, perform or record your music because I feel like there's so many iterations of, like, your songs and all of your various releases over the years. So I, I think that's cool when you can kind of take a song and reimagine it in a, in a different way or a different context and 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 it kind of has a different life because of that well i kind of even though i was like a a, a rap kid and a punk kid and an indie rock kid pretty much everybody i knew was a jazz person right. and i worked at the knitting factory when it was an experimental jazz club for the most part and um so i learned kind of the way of being a musician through this genre where the like you know nothing was set in stone you know it was kind of weird to try and make your live show sound like the recording you always had to do something to hit it in a sideways direction and you know a composition was a very 
ephemeral thing that wasn't tied to any particular recording. And that's just, that's just how I learned. And, um, so I did, I did a show with, um, with Def Cab for Cutie once. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so check it out. Me, Death Cab for Cutie, and Lemony Snicket on accordion. <laughs> okay. Playing okay. Duran Duran's Hungry Like the Wolf. Wow. Oh, yeah. I didn't I didn't expect the end of that yes. to, to be that. It was it was incredible. <laughs> I don't know if there's a recording of it, but I'll never forget in rehearsal, well it's sound check, we're going through it, and um, you know, I would I would start the song and you know, and um Ben and I were both doing lead vocals, and they would always do the changes at the exact same time. And I would be like, "What? Like what? Like <laughs> we can like hang out on this melody and we vamp for however long we want to, and whatever happens." And they were like, "Nope, it's four bars, and then it's another four bars, and then it's six bars or eight bars." And they were very like, like um, arrangement driven, recording driven. Mm. They have a, a, a cover of um, "I Want to Be Adored." The Stone Roses, yeah, and they do mm -hmm. it exactly like the recording, and that, I mean, mm. it's a it's a fabulous art form. It takes an incredible amount of skill to do that, but that's just not how I learned it. Well, should we move on to your second pick? Let us. Let <laughs> <Yeah>. us. <laughs> so, Tribe Called Quest, Low End Theory from 1991, yeah. actually just celebrated 30 years. Um, Incredible. Anniversary. Came out the same day as Nevermind. I love that, by the way, yeah. I know, that's so, so, crazy. so weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And um, yeah, so tell us a little bit about why you picked this album and how it has influenced you and all of that stuff. So in the late 80s and early 90s, there was a club called Giant Step. It was like yeah. a moving club. And it would be, it was all like jazz sample based hip hop. And they'd like have a live saxophone player. Sometimes there'd be a band. But it really was a lab for this kind of sound. Um, and it was a great club. And, like, being a giant step at 2 in the morning was, like, the best place in the world to be. Um, and uh, this is the album that took that whole, you know, world of development. And, you know, it, it's, it's the pinnacle of that. Mm. This album, like, changed my life. Like, I can't believe the, the, the moment when I first listened to the whole record was this drive from my girlfriend's house in Connecticut down into Manhattan. And I just was astonished the whole time. Yeah. Um, it's just like, I remember every part of that drive, man, like the Merritt Parkway and, you know, getting into the Bronx and, you know, going down the West Side Highway. And, you know, it's just such a moment. For me, one of the great things about that album, about hip hop in general, is you can have a varied cast of characters. So, like, mm -hmm. Busta Rhymes is the star in Scenario, and Sadat mm -hmm. X is the star in Show Business. And so, you've got the two main characters, but these other characters come in, come in the door, they leave out a different door, which I think is a tremendous advantage over rock music. And I, I remember. Like, really, okay. <laughs> uh, 
I, I really did not like going to see rock bands. I was just like, what the fuck? Like, everyone's <laughs> looking at this. Like, why aren't we looking at each other and dancing and going out and doing mm-hmm. drugs and coming back and, like, you know, <laughs> doing a whole mix? Just was not interesting to me. Or, you know, improvised jazz music where everybody was doing something crazy and it, there was, like, suspense. Mm-hmm. So Thurston Moore told me to see Nirvana at CBGB like six mm-hmm. months before Nevermind came out. And I was working mm-hmm. the door at the Knitting Factory, and he had done a bunch of experimental jazz things, and I was a huge Sonic Youth fan, saw him a million times. I, I, you know, I was like trying to be like, oh, hey, hey, Thurston, what's going on, man? Hey, yeah, you're going to see, hey, you're going to see Charles Gale, huh? All right, it's pretty cool. Um, you know, <laughs> and I, I, I was like, oh, yeah, I hear you're doing a, a duo improv show with, uh, uh, with William Hooker. He was like, yeah, but I, w- I wouldn't go to it. I'd go see Nirvana at CBGB. And I remember just being like, a rock band? <laughs> You're suggesting I go see a rock? And so stupid. Like, how could anyone be so stupid as to not see Nirvana at oh CBGB? Oh yeah. My oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> like, I wish... I, I know it's yeah. it's like the mo- it's like such a moment of stupidity in my life, like unbelievable, yeah. <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah, I wish. Uh, I know. Well, that was actually the first one of the first CDs I bought. I bought Nevermind mm. and Cooley High Harmony <laughs> Boys to Men on the same day. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I re- I remember the first time I heard "Smells Like Teen Spirit," and uh, you know, I'm not a, like a Nirvana guy per se. Would have loved to see them live, but that song just changed everything. Yes, and it I was know. the f- yeah. it was the first time in my life I didn't have to buy the cassette because you would turn on MTV and it would always be on, <laughs> and yeah, I would yeah. always crank the TV until it sputtered, and I absolutely loved it. But it was like it, it was like something that had never happened to me in the culture before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's such a contrast to the Tribe album, though. It's mm. like, and and in a lot of ways, like you know, this is just like the album of theirs that everyone talks about. Did you have any kind of particular attachments to certain songs on the album, or like that kind of influenced you? Because, like for me, I can see how you would like this album, you know, given like this, the kind of music that you were like putting yeah, yeah, out. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that. like I did everything to try and rip this off and like <laughs> blend it, blend it with like a knitting factory aesthetic, but hundred percent. I was like, I want an upright player. I want to have break beats. Like I like really, really, really wanted to, to, to do that. Yeah. Hmm. So like, yeah, I guess like what a, did you have repeats? Did you have skip, any skips on the album? Anything like that? Or were, is it kind of like, I love every song kind of thing? It, that, you know, it's funny, but no. Um, there's a, you know, it's got a really nice structure as a narrative, mm. especially like excursions, the first track into Bugging Out. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Like where vibes and stuff is in the record is this kind of like, kind of weird, cloudy, spooky party thing. Yeah. That's vibes and stuff that is is the one that's always on a playlist that I'm always repeating over and over again. But like there's a song called uh, Date Rape on there, which oh, is yeah. like yeah. I can't I can't <laughs> even tell if he's like pro or anti date rape. 
But I'm just like I think I infamous date rape. Yeah. Yes. I think that's the mm. problem with that song is that you just can't tell. Like it kind of seems like he's like anti, yeah. and then yeah. at the end he's kind of maybe going backwards on that a little bit. I don't know, but I it mean, was a I'm, different time, you know. I made an I, excuse my whole life that it was like, oh, this is his anti-date rape song. <laughs> But, That's what people claim, but you know. uh, I'm not so sure. Like, you know, we've listened to albums on the podcast before that didn't like age too well. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like like you 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 liked it at the time, and then you listen to it now, and you're like, mm, it's a little cringy. Yeah. <laughs> and that's yep. that's kind of mm-hmm. how I felt when I listened back to this song. Um, you know, current day for the, preparing for this, I was like, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that yeah. one. I, and but, I don't I just don't think it's even that good really. Yeah. I mean particularly, you know I mean they uh, were trying to be like, you know, social, you know, issues and stuff like that, but I don't know that this was so successful. <laughs> no, no, absolute skipper. Absolute skipper. Yeah. That same for me. That's the one I picked. But I felt like so much of the album until you get to the very end has like a very similar sound mm-hmm. to it, yeah. you know? Yes. Like yeah. you can breeze through it and then all of a sudden like scenario comes on <laughs> and you're just uh-huh. like, whoa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so for me, and also just because I have more memories attached to that particular song because it was like the the hit and like Buster Rhymes mm. was on it and all this stuff, I feel like that's the song that I would go back to. But I feel like that's such a basic choice. <laughs> Well, I mean, you put that on at any party and the dance floor fills up. Yes. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's, and it's just so like weird and rocking and like, what the hell was Buster Rhymes doing? Like, like row, row, like a dungeon dragon. Like, like it's just, you listen to it, you're like, what is going on? What is he doing? But it's so amazing. Just like busting the genre in half and rebuilding it. It's incredible. Yeah. No, I mean, like, he's had that sound, like, and you could always tell when it's him, like, on a song. He just Mm -hmm. has, like, that energy, that sound to him, so it's... Yeah. I heard someone recently on um, a YouTube series that I watched discussing um, a hit he had much later on, um, Put Your Hands Where My Eyes Could See. Yeah, yeah. And, like... Like, there is something, even though recently he said some things that have been problematic, let's disregard that. He just has such a a unique, specific sound, and his flow is awesome. Yeah, I mean, I don't have too much to add about this record. I just kind of think it's... It's pretty solid through and through. It's 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 also an album that I feel I only really appreciated in my adulthood. I was a little young when this came out. Other than the date rape song, <laughs> I, mean, I feel like it's yeah. it's pretty solid. My repeat is excursions. Actually. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, like this is like a like one of those quintessential albums that people will be talking about like every yeah. like anniversary year. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I think it's cool, like, that a group like this kind of was trying to... Because I feel like um, rap these days, it's not too much social commentary on it. So they were a group that really was trying to um, make some kind of positive statements or, like, kind of... Mm -hmm. Social commenting on social change and stuff, so... And they weren't talking about money. They, they were weren't. not talking about like yeah. it was not. I mean, it did, not that they didn't have lyrics about money, but it was it wasn't like like there was 
it wasn't like a heavy presence in the content was, by the way, let me tell you about how much money I have. Like, by <laughs> right. the way, hang on, I have a whole lot of money. Which is just, you know, like, I'm white, so it's a different thing for me. But I've just always found that dull. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, like, I've always been like, okay, fine. Like, anybody in the world, literally, can stub their toe on a bag full of money and they're rich. But if yeah. you're an artist, you have something that nobody else has. Yeah. Why aren't you talking yeah. about that rather than your fucking car? Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, lyri- lyrics and rap songs these days, like, not the great, you know, not very, like, um, substantial su- substance to it. <laughs> you know? I mean, there's a, look, there's a lot, there's a lot of great rap music. Yeah. And even, even some of it that I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever are often just incredibly talented artists, incredibly good records. Um, I'm still, like, all up in the rap caviar playlist every week, mm-hmm. um, you know. And, you know, like, I don't don't want to, like, poo-poo the genre because of one little content element at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh, It's just... Yeah, it's just different. It's I just think like sometimes they're um they can be like super misogynistic and oh, like, sure. you know, like all mm-hmm. sorts of problematic stuff. But when you find gems that kind of go beyond that, it's kind of mm-hmm. nice. So I think that's why I like you know, with like the latest little Nas X single, like it's it's interesting because um there is such emotion to it, which I mm-hmm. didn't expect, yeah. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. yeah, and, yeah. and 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 that's like um, something that I can connect to. Right. It's like right. even the way he ends the song and just like so to me, I, I like people who are like trying to change the game or like do something different. And yes. mm-hmm. And, you know, it's very similar to like, you know, like how your career started. You had a very like different kind of sound and 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 people grabbed onto it. And I think what when I listen to music, if I'm listening to somebody that is really just trying to do something that's just their own thing, then I can like really appreciate it a lot more because I feel like they're trying to push the artistry you know absolutely yeah not yeah, just yeah. there to make some coin <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah no thanks for choosing this i mean we don't really dig into a whole bunch of classic hip-hop releases and this was kind of like the pinnacle yeah so, yeah um, it's perfect it is so the like this it. nation of millions i yeah. mean there's a couple other that are like greatest albums of all time rap yeah. albums yeah well, thanks so much for coming to join us on the pod. So great. Thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure. And um, so you have, you know, your residencies possibly coming up in the new yeah. year. And is there uh, anything yeah. else you want to kind of promote? Well, Ghost of Room is my new band with Andrew Scrap Livingston. Uh, we make our records with Mario Caldado Jr., the sort of famed for his Beastie Boys productions in the late 1900s. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, I mean, their they're records we're really proud of. And especially if you like soul coughing and you're yeah. like, why did this guy go acoustic? They're, I really strongly hope you, you listen to them. 
Yeah, because it's like the name of the band is based on the yeah. first album name. Yeah, refers Room. to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, oh, yeah. Um, so there's more releases coming up for Ghosts of Room? Yeah, we have two out. We have a, an album and an EP. And then uh, we, we're just finishing up Ghost of Room 3. Awesome. Yep. Yay, Great. more look, to look forward to. Well, thanks for coming to join us on this episode. And we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.